welcome to the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. In this series, Disruptive Engineers, we'll be hosting conversations with industry leaders who are working on cutting edge technologies in quantum computing, cybersecurity, green tech, artificial intelligence, and more. I'm your host, Samantha Wallravens. Thank you for joining us for the first episode in our new Disruptive Engineers series. Today's episode features Dr. Iklak Sidhu, the Chief Scientist and Founding Director of the Sutarja Center for Entrepreneurship and Technology at the University of California, Berkeley, and author of the book, Innovation Engineering, A Practical Guide to Creating Anything New. Dr. Sidhu also advises companies that are innovating in areas, including big data, blockchain, and other emerging technologies. Iklak, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's talk about the Sutarja Center for Entrepreneurship and Technology at Berkeley. You founded it nearly 16 years ago. Can you tell us what the inspiration was for launching the center was, what its mission is, and and then maybe how it's evolved over the past number of years? Yeah, I'm going to start actually a lot farther back and say that all my degrees are um, electrical engineering through my PhD. And before coming back, into academics, I had spent a good chunk of time uh, running advanced development or or a big part of a a company, um, a 3Com corporation. And I actually had a startup company also in the wireless infrastructure area. And when I came back into academics, the idea was that I was trying to kind of close the loop on the difference between what my educational experience and what I thought was a necessary or effective or like kind of like, how does it really work? What were the differences between those two? And that's when I was actually coming back into first actually at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And then within a couple of years, uh, three years, I started this um, Sitarja Center for Entrepreneurship and Technology at UC Berkeley. In other words, I was recruited there in 2005. One thing that I used to say at that time, I haven't said this in a long time, but I'm just thinking back, is that once the problem is known and specified, a lot of the value is already lost. Because by the time that you can write down, this is exactly what the problem is, then you can give it to a lot of different people to solve it. But the step before knowing what that problem is, is actually where all the value is in in almost discovering the problem. So all of that was part of the mission of the center. And we started by just taking business materials like Harvard case studies and teaching them to engineers, scientists at Berkeley in, in that first year or two. One of the things that we were doing, and we were picking, you know, like entrepreneurship cases and innovation cases, things like that. And one aspect of it was that we could often bring the person who was written in the case into the classroom. When you get them into the classroom, what you find is that these people, they have more than the facts of the case. They have certain behaviors, they have a mindset, they have a way of seeing the world, they have a way of communicating. They're like brave sometimes in a way, like really willing to say what other people are not willing to say. So there were like all these characteristics where the case does not really do the process justice. Like you can read all the facts 
facts in the case, but until you met that person who was behind it, you didn't really understand how that company started. Some of these people are literally like a force of nature. Like you just get that something is going to work when you're talking to them. And there's not like any one type of entrepreneur. Some of them are like super aggressive, you know, in some ways, some of them are really mild mannered, but they have this like logic that's like really sharp. I mean, there's like all these different personalities. They're all different, but unique in, in a way that, that they all stand out, I think, and in, in like how they do things and how they think. And so what we started to do was say, well, how could we, instead of just teaching the case, how could we develop people to have those kinds of behaviors as part of the training process? So, you know, you can learn the case or you can work on your project, but while you're doing that, is there something that we can do that's more like behavioral development, more like a psychology session that would get you to actually pick up or have some of those behaviors? And that became the teaching method. And so we call that Berkeley method of entrepreneurship, this approach to uh, working on the mindset and behavior while the team is actually working on their venture. Oh, no, I just wanted to ask you about this Berkeley, the Berkeley method of entrepreneurship. What can you describe what this is? And it, it also outlines 10 behavioral patterns that make CEOs and entrepreneurs successful. What give us a, an idea of what those behavioral patterns are? Yeah. Okay. So the patterns themselves are, are, you know, understandable things. You know, they are things like having a wide comfort zone. Comfort zone is where you feel comfortable just being in a situation where you don't have all the information. So for example, if you think that you need to read the entire book and know everything before you try working on something, or, you know, like, it's like, it's like reading the entire Python manual before you write like one line of Python, you know, it's like, that's a low comfort zone. If you feel like, okay, I read a little bit, maybe 10%, let me just start. And then whatever I need to do, you know, I'll figure it out as we go. That's a wider comfort zone. So having a wide comfort zone, it turns out having a wide comfort zone and growth mindset are very like connected ideas. Another one would be like your ability to trust people, which is like that you can share information and your ability to be trusted by people. Later on, it comes down to being reliable. But in the beginning, it simply comes down to being able to, to mirror their expectation of you when, when you're meeting them. So there's getting trust from people. There's your ability to tell story. There's like perseverance factors, kind of like grit and so forth. So anyway, there, there's this list of 10 uh, somewhere built in there is is also EQ types of capabilities. One more thing that is generally built into this concept is inductive learning. And inductive learning means that like you can learn from patterns and learn from what you see instead of having it spelled out like basically how everything is taught in school. Everybody is good at inductive learning when they are children, when they're really small, you know, it's like you don't read a manual to know that you shouldn't touch a hot stove. You kind of figure it out on your own. Like either you 
put two and two together or you saw someone else burn their hand and you figure out not to touch that or some way you figure it out. Later on, you know, you've done so many problem sets and you've been given so many formulas that your mind starts to switch and you start to think before you, you get the answer to anything, you have to go find it in the book. You know, you've got to find a reference or you have to find the expert instead of putting the ideas together on your own and making your guess or hypothesis of what it is and testing it yourself, you switch to a deductive model where it had to be kind of explained to you before you can do it. It's a thing that school typically takes out of people, but in this model, you have to kind of get it back, your, your ability to pick up things on your own. I'm just curious, are these behaviors, I mean, these are big, big topics, right? Growth mindset, you know, being comfortable with being uncomfortable, gaining trust from people. Are these behavioral patterns you can teach? I mean, doesn't it take time to teach these behaviors or just something you can like do a crash course in at Sutarja? Teach might not be exactly the right word, but you can develop them. You, you, you can develop those behaviors. And I can explain just a little bit more. So there's mindset and there's behavior. So mindset is your programming of what you think is good and bad. So like, if you think it's good to have a wide comfort zone, then that's a mindset. If somebody else has been told to be very precise and careful and never step outside the bounds, then that's their mindset. They have a way of thinking what is right and what is not right. But having a mindset and having the behaviors that go with it aren't the same thing. So for example, you can have a mindset that exercising on a regular basis is good for you, but it doesn't mean that you actually do exercise on a regular basis. So a lot of people, you know, have a positive mindset about exercise, but the way that you actually develop the behavior is by doing a little bit of it on a regular basis over time. That behavior has to be basically developed in, in people. And to do it, sometimes you just have to do something that's a little awkward for a while until it becomes natural to you. And then, you know, you develop it. The term probably closest to this is fake it till you make it. If you're not natural at, you know, just being open and talking to people, then, you know, you don't have to lose yourself or anything, but just go th through the motion of what a person who's open does. Whatever you imagine that goes with that behavior, just being friendly to a person, for example, whatever you think goes with it, then then you do it awkwardly for a while. And if you do it long enough, then that becomes your norm. And if you don't do it, then you feel a little awkward. So you can develop th these behaviors, absolutely. I have a question about the term disruption. So that this term disruption mm -hmm. became part of our business and technology vernacular in 1997, really, when Harvard professor Clayton Christensen published his book, The Innovator's Dilemma. Yeah. And in, according to his theory, disruptive innovation is when an innovative new entrant, like a product or service, comes in, shakes up the market by displacing established competitors. So the small guy comes in, agile startup company comes in, displaces the big conglomerate, and it can really cause industries to reshape. So what role does the engineer or the engineering team play in this disruption ecosystem? So, I mean, regardless of whether it's disruptive or it's incremental, which would be your alternative there that, you know, it's like you made a product and you just made the product a little better or, you know, kind of regardless of anything that you're making, 
engineers, scientists, they're always involved in creating, you know, they're making the next feature, they're making the next version, they're, you know, they're making something, they're discovering something. Somewhere along here, there, there's a couple kind of misconceptions which are worth unraveling. One is that everybody thinks that it, there's like some huge discovery. You had some idea in the shower and then all of a sudden like the whole world changed or you know, something like that. There are these moments where you know, people discover things, but this usually what happened is people have been working on that question for years before that. They've been thinking about it. They've been doing other variations. And then once they actually like see a pattern that works, there's still a lot more that happens after that point. And can one engineer, can one person be disruptive? Does it take a a bigger ecosystem? Yeah. Okay. So let me just go back to what disruption is from it. If you really like look at the Christensen definition of disruption, it's a business model disruption as opposed to an engineering disruption. Let's take his example. So if you go back in in that book specifically, that book has all these examples of people were building hard drives that go in computers. And so it's like somebody makes a 100 megabyte hard drive and somebody makes a 200 megabyte and a 400. And there's like this line of hard drives and disks and so forth. And it's like one after another, and it's bigger and better and bigger and better. Those are all what he calls incremental disruptions. But what he shows is that the large companies are all good at making these incremental ones. It's like if you're IBM and you made one, then you can make the next one and you can make the next one. But if you were making it for like a personal computer and then some company decided to reconfigure that hard drive, not to be bigger, but to fit into the next thing that's coming along, which is say a laptop, you know, like they make a smaller version maybe it's not better in all of the different ways, but it's different. Sometimes it's a lower tech, but it's reconfigured for another market or it's reconfigured for sometimes even a cheaper product. In this case, you would call that a disruption. And what happens is that you've got the original product and it's more expensive and you make this cheaper version that goes in a different product like the laptop, eventually when the laptop becomes better and better, it crosses over the functionality of the desktop, meaning people stop buying the desktop and they start buying the laptop instead. And when that crossover happens, the thing that was a niche market becomes a mainstream market. And all the people who are making the bigger disk drive they go out of business and all the people who were making this cheaper version for the laptop, they then become the new mainstream laptop producers. So it's basically like, are you going to make the next version of what you're making? Or do you find this other niche, simpler version of the product, usually in a market that's not very big yet, but it has all the characteristics of one day later crossing over into the mainstream market and kind of getting rid of whoever was there before. You're a disruptor, I would say. You have 75 patents to your name. So my question for you is, is is it possible to be be truly innovative within the confines 
of a large corporation with all of its hierarchies and bureaucracies? You know, it is. Uh, absolutely, it is. In startup companies, everyone is there because they want to change the world, right? And so when you normally think of like, you go to work at a startup, you're thinking, all right, I'm going to join a people and they're all there only for one reason, because they don't like something about the way the world is and they're making this disruptive product or they're making some new service. They got somebody in mind that they want to put out a business and they're like making whatever it is. In larger companies, you have two kinds of people. You have one kind that is coming in because they also want to change something. So they're inventing new things. Sometimes they're incremental or disruptive, but they're always working on what's next and you know what to change. And then you've got another set of people whose main job is to make sure nothing changes in, in the company. And there's really a reason for those people too, believe it or not. It's not like one is like completely right or wrong. The people who, whose main focus is to make sure things don't go off track, you know, they're there to make sure the brand doesn't get ruined. They're there to make sure that the way that this company has made money up till now, that you don't lose that formula. So there's a lot of like, let's make sure that if we do something new, we do it gently. We make sure we don't kill all the stuff that already works in this company. And then you've got your like innovative type of people who are like, we don't really care what we break. We just want to make something new. And those two have to kind of, you know, deal with each other in the larger environment. In the startup, you don't have to deal with the people who are trying to stop you from doing something new. But on the other hand, in the small company, you haven't got this all the resources of the big company either. So there's just a little bit of balance between those two. So you can get innovation in both versions, but in the big company, you're fighting the outside market and you're fighting a little bit on the inside. In a small company, you're only fighting the outside market. Would you say that a big company, you can innovate, but not disrupt? Whereas a small company, a startup, you can disrupt and innovate? Uh, what you cannot disrupt is your own company when you're in a big company. So like you could say, oh, Google is super, you know, innovative. They come, you know, it's a large company. They come up with all kinds of stuff. They come up with it all the time. But, you know, I'll tell you, if you're in Google and you just came up with a way that nobody needs to pay for advertising, you will find it really hard to make that thing work inside Google. If you're going to end up killing what is feeding all the other activities, that's disruption. And there'll be like a hundred reasons why you can't do it and, you know, it'll get blocked. Now, if you've come up with a way that some other company can no longer make money, you know, you're disrupting somebody else. You're not disrupting the, the business you're in. So, you know, the company in general will be very supportive as long as it fits the general mission and brand of the company you're in. I want to talk a bit about diversity and the role that diversity plays in innovation. And okay. as we all know, Silicon Valley in the tech world is notoriously white and male. We've been working on diversity, pushing those diversity numbers up for a while. It's a slow process. My question for you is, can you truly innovate when everyone is coming from similar backgrounds with similar life experiences? When people are all coming from the same background, they don't have a whole lot of information that they can trade with each other. 
So, you know, if you got 10 people and they all did computer science, they all went to the same school and they all look about the same, they took the same classes, they know the same people. Honestly, nobody could say, I know somebody that you don't know, or I got an idea that you don't have. It's all the same. And now compare it to, you've got 10 people and one of them knows certain customers that the other people never met. And somebody else knows customers or problems and somebody else has skills that another person doesn't have. There's like all these different variations of perspective or design or whatever. When you have people who are different, they can bring in ideas projected from other places in the world and mix them. And so if you take this idea for something that these people need, but you build it in a way that was really developed for developing another product, you start to mix things together and you get innovation. And when you get rid of that, then of course, all that breaks down. There's no value to trade. The problem is that people have social barriers and they like to talk to people who are mostly like themselves. So like if you go to a party and you see the two people that are just like you and they agree with everything that you agree with and you already know it, and then you head right over there and you spend your time talking to those people, it's very comfortable, but they haven't got any value for you. You have to lower your social barrier to talk to a person who has different points of view and different background. It takes some energy to do that, but that's where the value actually comes from, from talking to the person who's different. Silicon Valley used to be, I think, a global melting pot in a way. But over time, I would say Silicon Valley probably suffers from a certain commonness in the culture, like because it's been successful for a while, there's almost becoming a norm of what is successful in Silicon Valley. And that's the point that you're bringing up that, you know, people are a bit more common now than perhaps they were at, at a time, you know, before this. And we talked a lot about in the class I taught last semester, the women in tech class, you know, why diversity is important. And I mean, there's data upon data that show companies that have diverse leadership teams have greater return on investment. Their numbers are better. So diversity is not just a nice thing to do. It's actually a good business decision. My follow-up question on diversity, though, is that the Berkeley method of entrepreneurship teaches behaviors, right? Like self-awareness, connection perseverance, all these things that you need to do to be successful as an entrepreneur or CEO, it doesn't address the systemic issues, right? The framework in the tech world of the sort of the sexes and the racism that are holding people back. So, I, you know, you look at, even you look at the college, you know, college classes, you know, there's so few women in these computer science and engineering classes, right? So it starts early on, not just when you get out into the work world. How do we overcome these systemic barriers to, I would say, to innovation? Yeah, it's a big question. So first of all, um, where I can agree easily, you're right. Berkeley Method isn't about solving the systemic area. It does support the idea that diversity is value. So it's aligned from that point of view. But you're right. By itself, you know, it's not going to solve the systemic issues. How do we solve these systemic issues? The thing is that a lot of this is is culture. So for a person to, you know, want to go into computer science, you have to feel like that's a place where you want to be and that the people who are there, at least some of them are like you. And so, you know, you can be really good at it 
and then you go to a tour or you spend a little time with other people who are good at computer science and you just feel like um, they're not like me. And even worse, if they feel like, like you're not like them, you know, you're really going to feel that, you know, even more. And so it's not just about can a person do it? Or are they smart enough to do it? Or are they like, you know, can, can they think in those ways? It's not that. It, it's much more about whether that social structure has enough people and is kind of welcoming enough for the segment that you're talking about to be able to join into it. Yeah, which companies and universities are working on? It's just a, a, a slow process to uh, create more diversity. Yeah, but you know, there, there's a difference between kind of the marketing version of it and the real version of it. So, you know, the marketing version is everyone's under pressure to say, you know, we really have a diverse workforce. So, you know, it's like anyone that qualifies, you put them in the right count on the spreadsheet and, you know, and then you have, you know, your marketing that says, oh, look, we're very diverse. And then there's the like actual, like who's doing what and are they respected in that organization? And, you know, there's a lot deeper to, to know, like, what is that core function, you know, in, in the company? And it also goes to pipeline because these companies cannot hire these people if they don't exist. You know, if you've got a population of 6%, you know, coming out of college of one segment or another, and you want them to take 30% of the roles, like it's just not possible. Like there's not enough people to make 30%. And so that you've got pipeline and then the pipeline to that pipeline is all the way back to middle school. And like, you know, it's, it's getting earlier and earlier. I want to talk about COVID and over the past year, COVID has certainly disrupted our lives in many ways, Yeah, uh, many of which are negative. In what ways has COVID been a catalyst for innovation in a positive sense? There's kind of two worlds out there. You know, it's like there's a digital divide and there's the like non-digital world where everyone would do things very human interactively. And there's a digital world where like so much could be done as we're doing now online everything from finance to teaching to, you know, like just everything else that actually could be done that way. And hotels, for example, could not, you know, could not easily be done completely digital. The people who were in the traditional non-digital world, they really did suffer. And I think some of that is going to come back now or has been coming back slowly. And But I think we'll be like heading back to some level of norm or at least a new norm but the digital world actually didn't suffer if anything you know netflix is doing much better than ever amazon is doing much better than ever like there's a lot of tech infrastructure that really did just fine through the pandemic in fact maybe the nasdaq market numbers are probably you know evidence of of that by itself you know while everyone thought the entire economy would collapse and that did not happen. It took a little bit of a dip and then, and it just kept going up. And the reason is that our needs are still there. We still want to do all of these things. It's just that we had to find new ways to do them, as many of them as we could digitally. And so 
you know, some version of an economy is still working. And a lot of that in, in the digital part of the economy still work just fine. So there's actually been some winners through, through this process. Although I have to say Zoom cocktail hours and Zoom family reunions, I'm getting kind of tired of them. I'm ready for, <laughs> I'm ready for the real world to get back. Uh, yeah, and, and so like, I think the pendulum is gonna swing. And so you know, what will happen is we were at one state and then because of COVID, it kind of went to everything went digital. And you know, what, what's gonna happen now is it's gonna start to come back but it's not gonna come back you know, necessarily all the way that it was the first time. Meaning now that this digital infrastructure is there, some things that you do on Zoom that you used to do in person, you're still gonna do them on Zoom just because there's an efficiency that was learned through this process. And so the things where you really need to be there in person, you will. And before you used to go to like 10 different things in person, and you weren't allowed to go to them on Zoom. And now I think what will happen is there'll be like five of them that you'll do on Zoom and five you'll do in person because the whole world got used to a certain amount of digital acceleration. They got used to certain things could really be done almost as well in, in that format as they could before. It, it actually supports a certain amount of globalization that we were not seeing before also. You know, just the fact that you can get people from around the world together on any given project team. In our classes at Berkeley, um, in our executive programs at Berkeley, we have people on the East Coast that we did not have before. They were, you know, all you know from Silicon Valley where, where you could drive or that we could drive there. Iglock, our time is up. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Super interesting conversation. Thank you for joining the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. The Lehigh at NASDAQ Center is a collaboration between Lehigh University and the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center. Our mission is to educate, connect, and inspire the next generation of global entrepreneurial leaders. To learn more about us, go to nasdaqcenter.lehigh.edu and follow us on Instagram. We are at Lehigh NASDAQ Center. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Dr. Sidhu, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast content. We hope you'll join us next week for my conversation with Jeff Rosedale, an intellectual property and startup lawyer, and Pranav Gokhal, the co-founder and CEO of Supertech Labs, who holds a PhD in quantum computing.